0: Welcome to COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Today I wanted to tell you about our new organization. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in Southern California. It's called the Autoimmune Community Institute. We're dedicated to health equity in autoimmune disease research, policy, and support for the communities of color. The underrepresented communities out there that don't often see themselves in disease community events, for example, and they don't see their face, a face like theirs in their community. And we are dedicated to community-based participatory research. We're dedicated to serving the community, for example, cooling programs, and also delivery services during the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, the immunocompromised community not being able to go out into public spaces due to disability or immunocompromised status from disease-modifying drugs. And we provide delivery services of essential goods, food, masks, protective gear, hand sanitizer, and so on to these communities. So please consider a donation to the Autoimmune Community Institute. You can find us at ACI, as in Autoimmune Community Institute, acicommunity.org. Hello, welcome to episode 19 of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno here in Southern California where the studios, the gyms, and everything have uh, been forced to close down again. So we're back in a retreat mode, which is common, as we've seen in different countries around the world. So in Asia, for example, we've still not been able to see complete management of the virus containment. However, we're starting to see reduced numbers, which is good. A Relatively clearer understanding of how the virus works in the population in terms of spread and contagion. And we're seeing similarly over there where there are openings and then there are closings again. So kind of stepping forward, stepping backward. And in this episode, Kristen talks about it as a, she refers to it as a dance, which is interesting. It is definitely uh, where we're dancing with this virus and responding accordingly to what's happening out there. So in this episode, we're actually going to be speaking to somebody for the first time in so far in this podcast, someone who has personally felt the impact of COVID-19 in terms of disease, infection, and even death. Kristen Urquiza's father passed away recently as a result of COVID-19 infection, and she's here to tell us her story in this episode of COVID-19 PPC. She has a public health background as well. She's been working in the field of environmental justice, environmental uh, work and health, which is really, it was really cool to hear about. And she's based in California where she's seen this dance as she refers to it with the pandemic as we navigate moving forward where we feel safe and then seeing that it wasn't so safe, retreating and having to re-strategize again. However, her family is in Arizona. She was raised in Arizona. And politically, the climate is in denial in terms of the virus and really believing that it's not something serious, nothing to really be concerned about, and that it's okay because it only affects certain people. And it should never be okay that it affects anybody. But there's the belief that it only affects the immunocompromised, the disabled, the people with chronic conditions already. However, in this interview, we will be seeing that it can affect anybody. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, how healthy, unhealthy you are. This virus is very, I I hate to say, it's very sophisticated and it does not really matter what you think about the virus. It's unpredictable, unfortunately. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you all because in this case, we're starting to see that it's zooming a little closer into our levels of awareness, those degrees of degrees of separation where we're starting to know people who know people. In this case, I was on Twitter this morning and I saw, you know, every so often I really have fun watching D'Souza and Miro on Showtime when I get it free occasionally. And on Twitter today, he mentioned that, Desouse mentioned that his cousin has passed away from COVID-19 in Birmingham, England. And he's really upset to hear about this, to find out about this. And people are consoling him, giving them their sympathies out there. So I feel like it is like people we kind of know. And in this case, in this episode, imagine that if it was your own parents, if it was your own father, your own mother, your grandparent, who has been infected by the virus and didn't take it seriously. This episode, this interview with Kristen, was really personal to me as well. It kind of hit home for me because my parents are in that same generation as her father was. I sense that it's not something that can really affect them, that they've been through tougher times already, and that this is not something that warrants serious uh, precaution. Unfortunately, that's kind of the, the kind of um, sense I'm getting from others. And it's also because I'm completely on the opposite side of the spectrum in terms of response because I'm in, immunocompromised. And it's really disappointing, but being from the opposite end of that spectrum with immunocompromised status, being completely distanced from my, my family. I haven't seen my mom since March or February or whatever. And people I know don't realize that social distancing is still necessary. The yoga studios, I keep referring to the yoga studios because I love my yoga studio. But they're meeting outside now, but they're meeting in groups. They're still meeting without masks and... You still need a mask, you know? So I just feel like there's an overall general lack of seriousness in terms of precaution and taking this virus in this pandemic seriously out there, unfortunately, until it starts to hit home, unfortunately. And in this episode, it feels like it's starting to hit home. It's closing in. We're starting to see people that we know. Imagine that it's your parents. Okay, he he had no pre-existing conditions, she will mention to you. He was 65, however, he was healthy. He didn't believe he was going to get it because of the news and what he believed in Arizona and what the political climate said to him about how it's not anything serious. He believed he was going to return home. But he passed away very suddenly because this disease is very stealthy. You could be feeling great one day, And then the next morning, suddenly, it's a complete change of events, physically, physiologically. And we're still only beginning to understand the pandemic. We're only beginning to understand the seriousness and the pathology of the virus. There are studies out there that are showing people being infected a second time, even. We used to think it was a respiratory disease, but now we're seeing that it affects all sorts of parts of the the body, including the blood vessels, blood clotting. We're seeing a lack of brain function, cognitive functioning even as a result of this virus. So there is still so much that we are learning on a weekly basis in the science, and we have yet to see what this is going to do to impact the public health even after we find a vaccine. So unfortunately, I really urge you to listen to this episode and share it with a loved one, share it with your parents, share it with your elders who are not taking this seriously, because he did not take it seriously, because he was under the belief that it wasn't serious. And so here we are. I introduce to you Kristen Urquiza, who shares her story in this episode. Hello, I'm Dr. April Moreno, and I'm To welcome you to COVID 19 Public Health Policy and Culture. We're here at episode 19 today, and we're going to be talking about what it's like to experience COVID in our own family and what's been going on in terms of public health and social movement, even out there. So, today we're speaking to Kristen Urquiza. She is the founder of Marked by COVID, and she's here to share a powerful story with us. Thank you so much for being here today, Kristen.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're about to have.
0: Me too. Thank you so much. Please introduce yourself a bit more to the podcast. Sure. Um,
1: So I um, have been actually an environmental advocate for a majority of my (laughs) career, and I've been looking at public health from an environmental standpoint. So the organization that I work with, Mighty Earth, we try to prevent pandemics by keeping tropical rainforests uh, preserved, um, and it's a you know really important not only for uh, that issue but for indigenous land rights and also um, for you know mitigating climate change. So, you know, very early on, whenever um, you know the pandemic started to make uh, headlines, um, I was concerned. Um, I you know had. Also, friends who are doctors and epidemiologists uh, who were, you know, I was conversing with, and and they were saying, you know, this is a really big deal. And um, I'm not sure if the response we're taking so far is is what we need to be doing. Um, And that, you know, that scared me from from day one. Um, And so I've been very vigilant in trying to, um, you know, share that information with, you know, my friends and my family. Um, But you know, kind of thinking about how has COVID affected, you know, my life, you know, I worked really hard to protect my parents who are in their mid-60s. They live in Arizona, which is a very particular state that has a lot of uh, Trump supporters and a lot of folks who basically have decided that science and doctors, you know, their their expertise doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And Um, despite my efforts to keep my parents safe, I wasn't successful. I wasn't able to battle the misinformation coming from the Trump administration and from the Ducey administration. And, you know, as a result, my father, um, you know, listened listened to what he thought was safe to do, to meet up with friends, to go shopping um, after the rollbacks of the Arizona shelter-in-place order and he contracted COVID-19 and passed away a couple of weeks
0: later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. (sighs) So tell us a little bit more about what you were seeing in the news compared to what he was telling you he was seeing. Yeah,
1: oh my gosh. I mean, it's just like uh, being on a different planet,
0: yeah
1: so my dad, you know he was he was very engaged with with news and radio um and social media platforms, mm-hmm. and we talked pretty frequently, and some of the information he was sharing with me just made no sense whatsoever. Um, I remember one conversation, you know, right after the shelter in place, uh, was lifted and my dad was saying, well, I I heard the governor say that it was, you know, unless you have an underlying health condition, it doesn't matter. You're safe. Go out, go shopping, you know, take friends out, you know, and, you know, this was May 28th. We already knew then that, you know, underlying health conditions, that was, that was like a February thing. That was Mm -hmm. not a May thing. Um, and, you know, that was that, that, those were the daily conversations with my father where, you know, I was working to help expand the information that he was getting, but, you know, I'm just one person. And whenever he's listening to multiple news sources, as well as social media, it creates a culture of uh, misinformation, which has deadly consequences. And, you know, that shouldn't be a death sentence. And that's what it ended up being
0: for my dad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about, I guess, the circumstances in which he experienced the virus. What was the health, um, his um, disposition, what was going on with his body physically?
1: Yeah, I mean, he was otherwise a healthy, no underlying condition, uh, 65-year-old guy who was quite literally the life of the party. And mm-hmm. just very active um, guy who, you know, was my family tends to live in the 90s, it, into their 90s. So, you know, had a lot of life to live. Um, he got sick on June 11th. And the day before, he was completely fine. Um, he woke up with a fever, a severe cough, and, you know, fatigue, unlike he'd ever experienced before. In um, talking to my mom, you know, she you know communicated to me. I, I've lived with your father for 48 years. I've never seen him this sick before. Um, we quickly, you know, scrambled to figure out where he could get tested, um, but we never got the results of this, of that test back because his condition just worsened over the course of the next couple of days. And and we we knew we had to take him to the hospital because he started to have. Uh, shortness of breath and trouble breathing and you know I throughout this entire few days you know had the CDC guidelines basically pasted you know on my desktop and was you know religiously walking through each of these on multiple times a day with my mom and my dad to just kind of track his symptoms um, to make sure that you know if things were progressing in a in a you know bad way that we could act quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, My dad you know I will say that my dad um was taking you know this very seriously, but also at the same time he was convinced that he would get better mm-hmm. um, you know while he was in the hospital, he started to feel a little bit better the first few days there um, and you know we were texting um chatting, and he would send me pictures of his hospital food. he loved food, so even hospital food did not scare him away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, saying, I'm going to get out next week and, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to coming home and, you know, it, it just worked really fast on him. And, um, you know, he, even the day before he went into the ICU, which was, uh, he went into the ICU on a Friday, the 26th, you know, that Thursday he was saying, I think I'm going to be home by Monday and he passed away on Tuesday. Mm.
0: Yeah, it just has these very sneaky characteristics, right? So there's a certain day where people feel better, and then all of a sudden the next day they're like completely the opposite. It's just very drastic and sudden, and it, it just has these stealthy characteristics. This yeah. yeah, I mean, I
1: you know we when he went into the ICU, um, you know he was in you know you know critical condition, but you know his he was able to stabilize on the ventilator and the ICU doctor, uh, you know, communicated to us, you know, pretty much that he felt like my dad had a really good chance that he could also potentially be in the ICU for upwards of two months um, and that we should prepare for that. And so his organs were doing really well. His vitals were really good. um, He was responding well to the ventilator and, um, you know, this was the day before he passed. I was having this conversation with the doctor and the next day just something happened over the course of a few hours and he took a turn for the worst and slow, you know, quick, rapidly began deteriorating. And Mm -hmm. in speaking to the doctor, I could tell, I could tell the doctor was just so, you know, upset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, he, didn't expect this for my dad at all and mm-hmm. um, still in those moments was communicating to us like he's now in severe condition we've seen people pull back from this and we will continue to fight for him as long as his heart and his blood pressure remains us uh, stabilized and we can stabilize it but you know eventually they couldn't
0: mm-hmm. it is so interesting even though he truly believed that he was going to be okay and that he was getting better that he would see you in the next couple of days at home. That still, it just like all happened. It's just so interesting that some people are able to get through it with underlying conditions. Healthy people are sometimes not able to get through it with underlying, without underlying conditions. It's so unpredictable. And I just don't even know like how to even talk about the course of what's going on physically, physiologically,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it just goes to show how new this is. Exactly. And we're still learning day and day and day what the medium, long term impacts are, you know, the short term, medium, long term impacts. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's why I think it's so important that we are really approaching policy and leadership with the utmost caution. Mm-hmm. At least from you know all of the conversations that I've had with doctors, um, you know epidemiologists and others, you know they have communicated to me that there is a way that well one we're being forced a false choice mm-hmm. that we need to either choose public health or the economy, and that's just simply not true. there is a way in which we can have a balance between the two that minimizes risk, minimizes transmission and minimizes death and this cavalier approach that the United States has taken. This is the toll. I, you and me having this conversation and my otherwise healthy 65 year old dad no longer being here. You know, I feel as if he was robbed. My Mm -hmm. family feels like they were robbed. Mm -hmm. And I know we're not alone in that feeling. Mm -hmm. I think that is what's happening to families all across the United States Mm -hmm. who are, you know asking themselves, did it really have to be this way? And I don't think so, I think this was preventable.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree definitely with the information that is available to us, the scientific evidence that is available to us. And there's enough out there that we're aware of, but then there's still this other realm of the population that is not seeing that information.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that goes back to you, the conversation we were just having about, you know, media, news sources, um, this, you know, and it's not everyone and not every news source, but there's just this misinformation that exists and has a microphone, which, you know, there are folks that believe it, but then even the folks who don't believe it, I think it muddles the central messages that need to really be push forward within public health. And, you know, some these simple things of mask wearing, of physical distance, of, you know, only going out for essential um, activities. Um, you know, in, I live in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have been very on top of those uh, key tactics to staying safe but that's not the case in other places there's just way too much and it's just too much for, for people to process then especially you know normal folks who are just trying to pay bills and you know teach their kids at home and worry about that there's it's just too much and i think it's the responsibility of the people in charge to be uplifting the most simple, salient messages Mm -hmm. that will help keep us safe. And I have not, I've not seen that in places like Arizona. And I've definitely not seen that from the Trump administration. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And it's just very simple concepts. the the way to fight this is very simple. This um, essential outings only for food and supplies once a week, taking a walk perhaps for a little while in the day once a day, um, wearing the mask, it's really simple,
1: yeah, it's it's super simple. Um, and I think where it gets complicated is that you know we're we're not all having that consistent message. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why there's a refusal to to do that. i I see this coming you know, I don't understand why this is a a political issue at all. This is about public health. Um, And the other thing that I I keep seeing again is that there's just no reopening strategy on the national level that, you know, allows us to have a real conversation about, um, you know, how do we do this in a way that minimizes the impact and the risk? And, you know, it, it, it feels to me that on some level that, you know, the Trump administration wants this to happen and I can't, you know, reconcile that. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing that I think about is just, Oh, who is this disproportionately impacting? This is disproportionately impacting a set of of the (laughs) color that, you know, maybe the Trump administration doesn't care as much about.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's, interesting because it does affect the the population as a whole, but then there are disproportionate populations that are being affected more so than others. I saw recently that, I think it was yesterday's news, where the data for reportable conditions for COVID in a certain state, can't remember where, um, is not being sent to public health. It's going to go straight to the White House first. That is something I just, I mean, that that really, takes away from the meaning of what a reportable condition is if you're not reporting it to your public health agency.
1: I was flabbergasted when I saw that, um, which further had me thinking like, "There there, there is something else that's happening that we are not aware of. To divert data from the CDC to the White House means that we cannot trust anything that is being reported. And yeah. if we can't trust the data, then we are flying blind. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I talk to a lot of scientists. And the one thing that I hear time and time again from scientists is that we need more data, mm-hmm. we need better data, and we need more research. And to bifurcate that um, is, is, is really, it's a red flag and um, it terrifies me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really curious to hear about your approach. You're talking about these two extremes that we've been working with, like in this country. And you said that you believe that there's this middle ground. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how things could be different?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I live in California Mm -hmm. and You know, we um, have had a a uptick in cases over the last couple of weeks, like most uh, Mm -hmm. states. But, you know, what I'm seeing um, our elected officials do is look at the data and respond to the uptick in real time. There's consistent briefings, there's consistent information available to the public, and then there's decisions that are made um, and communicated out as to why they're being made. So we just... um, you know, we just, the, the governor here just decided that indoor dining uh, would cease for the foreseeable future because of our uptick in mm-hmm. cases. And that coincides with the fact that over the last couple of weeks, there's been more conclusive evidence that indoor dining um, is, creates, you know, a hot spot. And so, you know, the thing that I really appreciate about living in a place like California is that it is more of a dance, with the, with the virus versus a like a, like a strong arm. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing at the federal level and then some of these um, other states like Arizona and Texas and Florida, it's almost like um, the governors are going to the hose and just cranking the spigot on the economy and letting the water overflow the bucket. And that overflow of the bucket are people's lives, like my dad. And, you know, what I see in places like California, Oregon, and Washington, that it's, it's more of this like slow turn Mm -hmm. where we may, you know, turn a little bit too much, but then have to go back a little bit. Overall, the progression is the water spigot is turning on, but there's more finesse. And as a result, like I feel safe. I feel like I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I feel like the people around me are also, doing their best with the best information and that to me is this progress forward where it is more of this two steps forward one step back dance and when we're dealing with a deadly virus like we were just talking about that we're still learning about on a day-to-day basis we need to be approaching it as a deadly virus case in point
0: right so simple to understand the basic concepts but to get that word out to people, I think there's these elements of fear and these elements of misinformation that are really blocking a lot of this. Like, I get it. Um, you know, my family, I have parents and, you know, the next generation pro- in the same age range as your parents. And, you know, there is there's, there's, tends to be this sense of, no, nah, it's not that bad. There's this sense of, no, really, I think it's probably OK if I do this it's okay for me to go and gather with my friends and family. It's, it's really probably going to be okay. We're tough. We've gone through a lot of other things. You know, we're in our sixties now. We're going to be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's that sense of, I I feel like there's a bit of fear in there too. Like, I don't want to feel it. I don't want to experience the possibility that we are experiencing our first pandemic in our life, in our lifetime here in the United States for a deadly virus. Um, I think there's that element, you know, they, that practicality, you know, like I just want things to be, everything's going to be okay, you know? Um, And it's not so bad.
1: To me really just resonates because, you know, I was talking earlier today to my partner and, you know, even, even myself who's been thrust into this situation and has chosen to speak out was having, you know, a little bit of a internal fit, where I was saying, I don't want this to be my reality. Is this still my reality? Like, is co like uh, COVID is still happening and just wanting to pull my hair out to, to uh, really just protest, like everything about our lives has changed. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that makes us really resilient as a species is that we're adaptable to change, mm-hmm. like biologically, but I don't think that's quite the same in the mental space. I think we like our habits. We, you know, like our creature comforts. And I think part of what is so challenging from more of like a human behavior perspective is that we are battling that internal desire to have things the way they were in January. And I think that part of what is exacerbating this pandemic is that, we're not being real with people that you know we will get to an eventual time but that's going to be a long time mm-hmm. and whatever that looks like it's going to be a little different and we are all changed as a result of that and i just think being honest about that better prepares us individually and as families and as broader communities for um for that eventual time to be more resilient. Mm-hmm. And I'm not seeing any of that conversation really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a result, you know, as you were saying, it makes it more difficult for us to keep our loved ones safe because everyone is, you know, everyone is approaching this differently. And it's really easy to, even in the context of this pandemic, say, that's not going to happen to me. And, you know, I predict with the trajectory we're on, more of us are going to know someone who has lost their life or has been in a battle with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the virus, the virus, you know, viruses don't know uh, national boundaries mm-hmm. or state lines or city municipalities. And this one in particular, I think is just, you know, I, you have to admire it at some level it's been able to you know really um go deep into the area in which we are so uh, special in our social networks and our physical presence with people we, you know we are we are social creatures and the fact that that it really uh can transmit because of that closeness in our social networks you know I have to I have to give it props like that that's going to make it really resilient
0: right it has thoroughly uprooted the way that we live around the world it's it's just yeah it's really hard to you know wrap our heads around that yeah um tell us a little bit more in your opinion about what the world needs to know right now
1: I mean (laughs) The world needs to know that we can get through this, that we have survived other pandemics as a species, and we have survived. I mean, we are really resilient. But the way that we have done that and have been able to come back stronger is by working together. And this, I think, is you know something I see in other countries. I'm inspired by the approach of the European Union and, and other uh, nations that are, you know, kind of a similar caliber to us, but, you know, I think that the United States, we're not doing our part. And I think it's time for other countries to stand up to us and to help pressure our leaders to do right, not only by our, our, our us Americans, but do right globally. As long as the United States doesn't do its part, the entire world remains at risk. And that doesn't sit well in my stomach.
0: Right, yeah, we are all impacted. We are all interconnected. Yeah, it's, it's a very well-designed virus.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a, a really great way to put it. It is very well-designed.
0: And it's going to be an opportunity for us to really change the way that we collaborate and navigate difficulty it's going to change the way we work with policy, with public health, so many yeah. things.
1: And I also think because of that too, it's an opportunity to, um, you know, go back to the drawing board and examine like what wasn't working. You mm-hmm. know, one of the things that I, you know, st- have studied a lot is just in- inequities in our society, wealth inequality climate change, uh, you know, fossil fuels, and and this, you know, disruption is an opportunity to really reimagine um, our global eco- economy, our carbon footprint, you know, uh, social safety net, and a whole set of, mm-hmm. of, of things to help make us more resilient as as a population and as a country. And so, you know, it's a, a little bit of a a long shot, but I think we should be asking for what we want. Um, If there is ever a time
0: to do that, this is the moment. This is really the moment. You know, in the public health space or in the public administration space where I was prior to public health, we were trained not to be politically, um, you know, not to share our views. Mm
1: -hmm. As
0: we lead cities, governments, In public administration, we lead organizations. We were told to be very impartial because we have to serve the community as a whole. And it makes sense, but we are at a point where we're talking about people's literal life and death circumstances. We're talking about, even in this era, actual police brutality, racism, people actually getting killed in the street, in their own home, sleeping. We cannot be in the middle anymore. Yeah, I agree. We cannot be passive to this. I agree.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I, I hear what you're saying and, and, you know, you know, I, I understand, you know, the, the, you know, theoretical need for impartialness, but this is no longer that we are past that threshold. Um, and I think it's time for us all to be speaking out and demanding change. I mean, I think it's one of the most per- patriotic things that we can be doing. Right? You know?
0: I mean, that's really what the foundations were. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean- the country was led by people who were rebellious, and they spoke against governments and yeah, we are
1: yeah, here we are, um and I think it's our our patriotic duty to preserve and continue to iterate and improve upon that democratic promise in which we are you know far off the mark right now, but you know, we have so, I mean, I think that's what's inspiring too, is that there's, we have so much technology now, we have so many creative people. I mean, I've, you know, through the course of the last couple of weeks have been, just had an outpouring of support um, and have been so inspired by people who are so engaged, want to make a difference, are asking, how do I, how do I get involved? What do I do? And Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the American spirit as well is that we're really determined to make the world a better place whenever you know, we, we put our mind to it. I think we can.
0: Right, yeah, and I think this is a very important moment as you mentioned, and I haven't, haven't told you this, but you're actually the first person on this podcast who's actually experienced firsthand what COVID-19 can do yeah. to our bodies and to our lives, to our families. Mm. And you're the first person who's been here to share personally that this is real.
1: And you know what, I, um, I'm not surprised by that because what I'm seeing is that, you know, through my speaking out about my dad's death, that I, you know, am been one of the first people to really kind of not only share uh, what that experience was like, but also the first person to really say, this could have been preventable. And it was poor leadership and terrible policy that got us to this position and and you know I'm not I'm you know I I know that it won't bring back my dad and you know between us that's what I would love more than anything but you know I know that when people step forward and come into the light we become so visible and so large that we can't be ignored and so you know, right now, by sharing my story, speaking to folks like you, your listeners, um, my hope is that more people will come forward, more folks will share their stories, and I think that's kind of the beginning of a of a movement yes. to be able to to prioritize sensible public health policy, going back to those easy things that we need to do that we can do with you know a version of
0: the economy open. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I agree with you. Unfortunately, um, I I mean, I would love for people to come on here on the podcast and publicly in the media to more frequently share their personal experiences. We've seen a few out there, but we need to hear more. We need to really stand up to policy change and enforcement of protection for ourselves against this virus. But I do unfortunately agree with you that I don't think people are going to take this seriously until it really starts to hit home a little bit more, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I launched Marked by COVID was to create a platform to for people to come forward, uh, share their stories, not only to be able to start to put faces to the numbers, but also as a platform for people who are experiencing this, in this to grieve together. Um, you know, I have been so overwhelmed with positive feedback um, of you know the the sort of movement that we're building and it's really like oxygen to um, my soul. Um, I think that you know we can personify this virus and I think that personification will make a tremendous impact on our willingness to accept these decisions that you know, these policy decisions that might seem mundane, but like we've been talking about, have real human impacts. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad and I just a month ago were talking about um, when he was going to come visit me in San Francisco. Um, I could not have predicted this would happen. And that just goes to show that we none of us are safe.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying about the faces to the numbers, putting an actual face to these statistics. It's going to make a huge impact. I agree with you on that. And I love the work that you're doing marked by COVID. And it is powerful when you share your story, when you share and, you know, through trials and difficulties, you have this new strength. You're just like, this cannot happen again. We have to do something about this. Yeah, I I really appreciate that you're doing this.
1: Thank you. I mean, I was inspired by the AIDS Memorial Quilt, which you know was also a kind of a similar time when we had this crisis. It was downplayed, um, and you know there was also a lot of homophobia at that time. And you know this was and, uh, you know the with the AIDS Memorial Quilt, it was really putting faces to those numbers in a really visible way that helped pressure politicians to take the virus seriously. Um, and so kind of looking back at, at that, mm-hmm. recognizing that we need a similar movement here. Um, and, you know, it's up to all of us to, to, to push our comfort level. I, I'm actually a very private person, um, <laughs> which I, I guess like you wouldn't know <laughs> uh, from the last week. But, you know, I don't, I don't like sharing how I'm feeling, I, I, but I know that I need to because mm-hmm if this is happening to me, this is happening to other people. And right. I can't, I just can't let that go.
0: Right. Yeah. Now you're being guided by this purpose. Right. It's bigger than all of us. And yeah, Absolutely. it's affecting the world.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your motivation and your strength to be able to share your story. And I'm really, you know, my heart goes out to you with with what happened with your father and i really appreciate that you've been here today to share your story with us on the podcast and please share with us a little bit more about marked by covid and how we can connect with you on social media yeah
1: absolutely um so we have a twitter instagram and facebook group uh, marked by covid uh, my dad's name was mark so That's kind of where the inspiration for the name came from, a little nod to him. Uh, We also have a website markedbycovid.com. We're asking people to share their stories on our website um, so that we can start to amplify and personify this um, movement. Uh, We're also gearing towards a, a national day of action on what would have been my dad's 66th birthday, August 13th and wanna work with um, people all across the country to um, bring their concerns directly to elected officials. Obviously in a socially distanced mask wearing safe manner, um, but for more information on that, it's available on the website. And then we're also uh, raising funds in order to help sponsor more honest obituaries. Uh, One of the things that I've learned over the course of the last several weeks is that You know, people have said, thank you so much for writing that obituary in the way that you did. And, you know, I had a loved one who passed, but I wasn't even able to afford an obituary. Um, And so I wanna make sure there's space for those stories to be told as well. It's important. Um, And so we're raising funds to help
0: sponsor those as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're doing some very important work right now. This is a historic time. And I really appreciate your work, your message. And your story.
1: Thank you so much for um, connecting with me and uh, uh, inviting me to be part of this podcast.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here today, Kristen. My pleasure. Thank you. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second Uh, podcast hosting software I've used and um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free and they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer and then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started Um, That's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about covid19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash covid19 ppc is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there